Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. I'm a practitioner with over a decade in machine learning data science. And we are excited today to have Dr. Julia Stojanovich. Dr. Stojanovich is an associate professor of computer science and engineering and of data science and the director for the Center for Responsible AI at NYU. Her goal is to make responsible AI synonymous with AI. Julia has co-authored over 100 academic publications and has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Le Monde. She engages in technology policy, has teaching responsible data um, AI to students, practitioners, and the public, and has co-authored comic books on this topic. She received her PhD in computer science from Columbia University. Welcome. We're very excited to have you today. Uh, Julia, when we were talking back in June, there was a there's a very interesting story on how you got involved, more involved AI. So, and that with some changes that the city was New York City was looking at. Do you mind walking us through that that story arc there? How how this all came? Uh, your focus on responsible AI came to be more. Thank public? you for that question, sir. Uh, so, it, just in the way of background, right? I'm an engineer. I'm a computer scientist by training, and these days we call ourselves data scientists as well, and that explains my academic title. Right. So, I teach both computer science mm-hmm. and data science at New York University. And as an engineer at heart, uh, my goal has always been to make things work better in some sense. And so, of course, traditionally, what that means for us in the computer science discipline is that we build algorithms, we build ways to collect data, to analyze data that make it easier, faster for people to answer questions, right? So this is the type of building and the type of Mm -hmm. engineering that I have engaged in traditionally. Uh, But close to a decade ago, I realized that these days to engineer society, we need to go beyond engineering the algorithms that we use. We also need to think about how we help people use these algorithmic systems in ways that are more productive, that are safer, uh, that allow us to harness the benefits of the data and the algorithms and the compute power, while at the same time controlling the risks. And so this sort of a long-winded you know, description is is how I see responsible AI. It's making it so that we can design, develop, and use systems in ways that are socially sustainable, that help us, that make things better for us. And not just for a select few, but rather for all of us collectively in some way. And so one of the things that I realized when thinking about this is that once again, building algorithms, building data processing systems is not enough, but rather we also need to be creating structures that help people control how these algorithms and systems are used. And a very important tool in this toolkit is policy and regulation. We do need laws. We need regulation uh, to help us make sure that the way that we use these systems helps people, right? That it aligns with our democratic values, that it uh, helps us uh, further the goals of, you know, the human rights, etc. And that the only goal here cannot simply be making a profit for some stakeholder somewhere. Um, yeah, I thought that was a very, in our first conversation, I 
I love that perspective because it's not a way I had thought about things before are or important for technologists to be technologists to be involved or influencing in the policy making. Like the beauty of some of these tools and what we're doing is that we have this grand opportunity to get in the in the and economic markets should generally make things better for the human condition overall, not just for the few, because that's, you know, irrespective of which side of the political spectrum you sit on, we all do want things to be fair and we want opportunities for the many, not just a couple. Right, then it's... And so that's what one, one aspect I loved about when you were talking to say that story is this, oh, this is a fascinating different perspective. We hadn't yet had a guest on the podcast that... So, I mean, maybe to add to that a little bit, it's not a zero-sum game, right? It's not the case that we have some fixed mm -hmm. amount of resources and we are just thinking about how to distribute those resources. Technology is here to make it so that we create more than what we started out with, right? So that the question is, who reaps the benefits of the opportunities that we create? And this is, again, one of the reasons that we need policy as one of the tools in our toolkit is to make sure that we distribute this opportunity equitably in some sense. Also, we need public input. We need input from many, many stakeholders in uh, the way that we regulate, right? On deciding what laws we should put into place. Because, of course, what it means to distribute resources, to distribute access to opportunity equitably, is a very difficult question, right? And figuring out what an answer to that question may be at a given point in time, in a given application, in a given context, context this is the work of democracy that we all should engage in, right? And mm -hmm. because we live in a democratic system, we need to make sure that we hear uh, many voices uh, as part of this conversation, right? So how did I get involved in, in the policy debate, uh, in, in the work of technology policy? I, as a member of the public, uh, became aware of a uh, proposal for a law in New York City uh, that was made, I believe, in 2017 by a New York City council member at the time uh, by the name of Vaca. And council member Vaca proposed that we in New York should make it so that when New York City agencies, government agencies, use algorithms and data to make decisions that impact New Yorkers, that they should become more transparent and accountable to the public in the way that they use data and they use algorithms. And this is a laudable goal, no doubt, right? Government accountability is something that I think we all would agree uh, is an important goal, right? And this is Ask anybody mm -hmm. anywhere on the political spectrum. We want to know how and why our governments are making the decisions that they make. Uh, but then the specifics of the proposal that Council Member Vaca made were, in my mind, problematic. <laughs> and uh, specifically what he said was that whenever a New York City agency uses algorithms or data, they should make the source code of those algorithms publicly available online for anybody to uh, look at. And uh, when I read that, I thought two things. First, this is such a great effort. I really need to, you know, to, to come and then talk about this with others so that we can figure out how to actually do this. And the second thought that I had was that, to use computer science speak here a little bit, the requirement that council member Vaca uh, thought was the requirement here to make the code publicly available of every system that anybody in government uses, that this is neither necessary nor is it sufficient to support the goals of transparency and accountability. It's not sufficient because simply by looking at the source code, you are not going to know what the program does. And, you know, for anybody who has ever written a piece of code, <laughs> this, this will resonate yeah. with you, right? Here's a hundred thousand lines of code. Yeah. Have fun. 
No. Yeah, right, exactly. And you're not going to know what it does because what, what you need is actually to be able to run it, right? You need to take some input and to run it and to observe what the output is. Uh, and this is true in computer science. It's also true in other disciplines. For example, we have been able to decipher the uh, genetic code of, of ourselves and of many, many other organisms on this planet. We still don't know what specific parts of that code do, right? So just having the information about the code doesn't really tell you much about the function. So it's insufficient. And by a kind of a similar argument, making code available is not strictly necessary because you don't need to know how it works. You need to know what it does. You need to be able to interrogate it, to ask it questions, to give it inputs and to observe the outputs. And based on that, to draw your conclusions about whether the decisions are correct or incorrect, fair or unfair, robust or uh, lack robustness, right? So being able to use this basic that the scientific method gives us to interrogate processes, right? It, it applies in computer science and data science as much as it applies in, in the natural sciences. And this is, in my opinion, what we should be using as our guideline. So I said all of this and a little bit more in my public testimony that I entered. Uh, and I said it more concisely, but, but this is more or less uh, the, the sentiment that I expressed. <laughs> and uh, the, the public hearing was quite well attended. It was the first... Uh, time that I ever took it upon myself to go and testify at the hearing. And anybody can do this, right? I said that I did this as a member of the public, not as an academic or a public intellectual, right? I just felt that I had to speak. And then it was one of the most uh, transformative experiences, as it, as it turns out, for my life and for my career. Uh, and having testified at that hearing, uh, I, of course, entered my written testimony. And then uh, as a result of this deliberation, the New York City decided to not put a law in place immediately, but rather to put together a task force that would work for some amount of time, a year and a half was ultimately the time that, that it worked, uh, that would be made up of New York City agency representatives and external folks. And I was delighted to have been appointed to that task force as one of the external uh, members by our mayor at the time, Bill de Blasio. And this, uh, the Genesis story, as you said, said of my public engagement. One of the things that I really want this and Lee's, um, he's had the, well, let's say fortune, sometimes misfortune of working with me for a while. So he's heard me say this in the past. But what I really loved about the story is it kind of, it goes towards what I, in my layman's term, is referred to as democracy 2.0 type concepts. Like how might we move to where laws or governing might be a little more agile and responsive don't have um, those whose job it is to think about laws and the governing working in a vacuum, that we have this collaboration so that as we all move towards what hopefully is a better, brighter future, that those who have the knowledge, those whose job it is to govern, and those who might be impacted, that there's this nice collaboration to what we should get. Because um, you know we've all seen it many times, laws get thrown over the fence and we're all left to deal with the repercussions and then changed. Um, so that, that was just another aspect that I loved about the story here is that, you know, you spoke up, there was an immediate response to that. And that response was, oh, this is a good idea. Let's take and think this, and let's actually take some more input to come up with something that is going to be more informed 
and get us better to the goal, which is transparency. Right. Uh, another interesting thing about this is that, of course, it wasn't just me speaking up, right? It was many, many people expressing different mm -hmm. points of view. Uh, and overall, no specific decision was reached, which is a little bit disappointing. We did not pass a law mm -hmm. at that very moment. But I think that at that time, that was actually the right decision because many of us came mm -hmm. to, uh, to testify, to, to speak out, saying that we just don't know enough yet about how to deal with this, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a very important thing to, to keep in mind and to kind of form your attitude around that this is a new world that we live in. And at the moment, we mm -hmm. don't really know yet. And maybe today in 2023, we know a lot more than we did in 2017. Things are developing very fast here at light speed, essentially. But nobody has really figured out how to regulate the use of AI, either, you know, in general, across the board or in specific domain. But what that means is that we should try. We should use the, the data science point of view here. I think we should try and work through examples and really talk through all of the details. Uh, the devil is in the detail here as much as, as in any other domain. And there does not exist currently, I believe, somebody or a group of people who would truly be experts on every aspect of this conversation. There are very few people out there who have deep academic and practical expertise in policy and regulation and uh, technology and the specific domains in which technology is used. And what this means is that we all should trust ourselves to step up, although we don't know everything, right? And to come at this with a humility and say, I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. And I think another piece that makes this complex as well in the way that the field has evolved in the last five years is a lot of the research now into the methods is being done by private corporations. I, Google, Facebook, you know, have massive research units that often hire people away from academia to these more closed ecosystems. And, you know, do we trust that Google and Facebook are being fully open, transparent, ethical? Of course, they're, they're private corporations who are looking to make money out of what they do. I uh, feel so that's combined with how fast the field is moving, especially in the last year or two, where things have just gone from fast to you know insane. I feel it's also making the the, the conversation harder as well, because academics like yourself don't always have access to all the things they need to really inform this in the way that it should be informed. Right. Uh, and maybe to, to continue on that a little bit, transparency is something that we all want, but there are very few incentives towards transparency, either within companies that are using and developing software that impacts us or within governments, right? And the experience that I spoke about starting out was about government transparency. There are lots of disincentives. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody in, in a government position who uses uh, AI to make decisions about who gets public assistance, for example, and who doesn't, is going to be very worried uh, about waking up on the front page of the New York Times in an unfavorable light, should something come out about them, you know, having a bug in their code or not understanding really what the impacts are of the code that they're running. And so one of the things that I learned uh, as a member of the Automated Decision Systems Task Force in New York City was not something that I thought I would learn, but, but I did. And that is that technology is the easy part here. Uh, figuring out how to explain how an algorithm responds to data, setting up a testing framework. We, we know how to do that. 
But the hard part is actually figuring out how to create an environment of trust and of uh, incentives, some of which are positive, right? So not just sticks, but also carrots, so that people feel comfortable talking to you about, you know, some of the problems that they may have. Ask you questions about how they may do things better without, once again, being afraid of, you know, transparency backfiring. Uh, and, and and I think, and Lee and I have worked with government um, for quite a long time, and and I think that um, a lot of folks get a bad rap. They are, for the most part, much more hardworking than some people in public like to portray them. And then strung by rules and, and regulations, and then the fact that uh, I think the the one of the that are, that seems to keep them from you know keep government systems from trying things new and the, the example you made there is a a level of forgiveness that is allowed in the commercial sector that is disallowed in the public sector um, in that somebody makes a, a lending error you know bank yes there's there are laws now that make it a little but they're not going to get fired over that they might end up with a fine but nobody's going to get fired nobody's going to but that same Rules and the expectations are not are, are at a much higher level for mistake. We do understand. We don't want the, given the impact of laws and, and policies and regulation, mistakes are costly for individuals, but it also discourages people in doing the pursuit of what could be better or different. Um, and that's one of the other things that we have observed it's, as people look to do and figure out, you know, how the world is evolving and how to Right, great comment. I, so sorry, I, there I wasn't agree. A question yeah, in there. yeah, yeah, I, I agree completely. <laughs> it, it's hard to to work in government. It's much harder than in corporations. But I think that's the nature of the beast, also, right? Is that when you work in a government entity, you are signing up for public accountability. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Public accountability, and and sometimes even being in the spotlight. So, so now you you spoke up in 2017. You got it for us. And but now um, are a big part of this responsive Center for Responsible AI at NYU. So there's also a related story got started. So what what is how did the, the responsible AI at NYU and what is the um, you know what are y'all today? Yeah. So the, the Center for Responsible AI at at, at NYU is uh, an entity at, at NYU, an academic institution uh, that is made up of essentially faculty, research scientists. Uh, graduate students, and we also have some external collaborators from outside of NYU. Uh, and we all collaborate on trying to understand and act on an understanding about what it would take to make responsible AI synonymous with AI. Mm -hmm. We don't want to live in the present or in the future where there are two kinds of AI. The, you know, one that is put together somehow yeah. and is doing something that we can't quite tell, and then the one that is developed in ways that are responsible and socially sustainable, and where, again, you know, these resources are distributed equitably and benefits. And it is not the case that only uh, a particular group of people bears all, all the risks and then some other group of people reaps all the benefits, right? This is what we want to prevent. The, the center started really as a kind of a consequence of, of me realizing that basic research in computer science and in data science is not enough, that we need to be also looking at policy and Within policy, we need to be focusing on specific domains, on specific uses of automated decision systems or AI, uh, so that we can better understand what the benefits are and to what the risks are, uh, what is the current, you know, 
climate professional practice tools that are available, what is the current legal system, and what can we do to to improve things, right? So this came out of me realizing during my time on the ADS task force in New York City that it's really very difficult to get concrete examples. It was very difficult to get Mm -hmm. concrete examples from New York City agency representatives about their use of data and technology in domain uh, where where people are impacted, which presumably everywhere, right? Because why would the government be doing something that is immaterial to to the people of New York? Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of resistance. I mentioned this already to to disclosure because folks didn't feel comfortable telling us external people what they do and how they do it, right? And so we weren't able to overcome that obstacle. And so at the Center for Responsible AI, we work on specific domains. Uh, and in addition to our involvement in applied research and in policy, we also do a lot of work on education and training. And uh, this is for folks across the board. We feel that at the moment, AI literacy lacks generally in the population. And this is preventing people from protecting their own interests when they are subjected to automated decision-making. And also it prevents people from speaking up about how they would want to change the world, right? Coming and testifying on something that you have no idea about is very intimidating, right? So we want to make it so that people, in fact, feel that they are in a position to to speak up and form and express an opinion. We also do a lot of work on educating people who are currently in the workforce in different roles about this complex topic that is responsible AI. So folks who are in technical roles right now at companies they really haven't been taught about ethics when they went to college or they took their their courses in, in computer science and data science. And we need to tell them that technology that they're building is not objective, is not value neutral. How it works and what its impacts are depends very much on the, uh, you know, even performance criteria that you embed. So this is something that you need to think about very carefully. Um, and we also teach folks like policymakers and like decision makers at companies who are generalists very often, not technical, both what they need to know about technology and what they need to know about uh, its its social impact. And this is a huge field that is largely untapped, really. I mean, how do we make it so that we get on the same page in the society in this conversation about what is AI, what is responsible AI, and how do we control Um, And I... Sorry, Lee. Well, I've found that a lot of people in the field itself, their science tends to attract, AI tends to attract by its very nature, people who are more mathematical in nature, people who have people done the computer science degrees and who just, just love them. I remember when Facebook had reached out to me in the past about hiring and stuff, it's always like, we have huge data sets. That, you know, come and work on those hours. That's the hook. That's the pitch that was being made. Never was the pitch come and build you know, things responsibly, come and build things ethically, you know, come and figure out how to build things that are maybe a, a bit less accurate, but are, you know, more equitable. So just an observation is that can also be, you know, the people who are building these things often are attracted not by the social impact, but often, and some are, I believe that I am, I hope I am, but many are more enamored with the, the hard math and building a cutting system. Do you also kind of work with yeah. people like that to kind of help them bridge the gap from what they're building to, you know, that book. Yeah, the, the, this, this is a great comment, Lee, right? So, I mean, traditionally, computer science and data and what we're now calling data science, it's really not a traditional field, right? That's why I stumbled here a bit. 
but traditionally, math, computer science, physics, all of these fields have been male-dominated. Also very true. For many number of reasons, right? Cultural reasons. I am a woman in computer science. I have a degree in mathematics and in computer science. And I, you know, always just love these topics. I, you know, any day give me a theorem to prove, I would prefer to do that. But it doesn't have to be an either-or, right? I mean, we are seeing actually mm-hmm. lots of folks now who come from very different backgrounds, uh, demographically and socioeconomically and geographically, and who gravitate towards computer science and data science now that it, beca- it has become apparent that the social impacts cannot really be separated from the technical. And so no matter what you think about diversity efforts in higher education or in the workforce, what we are seeing right now, really, somehow by, it's not by accident, but it's not by design either. I think that it just naturally happened, is that when we started thinking about technology, not in the abstract, not as a mathematical black box, but rather in how it impacts society, we are seeing a much more diverse group of people, of thinkers at the table. And, and it's just much more fun to work in this environment now. I'm not the only woman in the room any longer. And that's, that's really very nice. I think as well, like you need to, to build these systems, even just taking down the accuracy argument, ignoring the social one, you know, I might build a system and, you know, I am a white cisgendered male from the UK originally. I, I, I have a certain set of lived experiences that are specific to that, right? These systems are so general now that often... I might not ask the right questions of it to make sure it is accurate enough again. And the social side as well, of course. So I think that having diverse teams is actually vital for building these systems in any capacity because you're asking the broader range of questions and lived experiences that really are required and needed to make better decisions using these automated systems. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. The, the way that I think about this is that, you know, nobody is smart enough, no matter how well-meaning they are, to simultaneously imagine themselves in everybody else's shoes, right? I mean, this is, if you think that you can decide on behalf of everybody in society what is better for them, that's hubris, right? We, we should make sure that, that we are honest with ourselves about this. Uh, and that's a very kind of a totalitarian uh, way of thinking, right? We don't want to end up uh, in that world where some benevolent entity single-handedly decides how to measure accuracy, for example, right? And how you measure accuracy is also not, not an easy question to answer, right? So for example, you could be counting how many mistakes your predictor makes. That's one way to measure accuracy. Or you could be counting how many mistakes it makes that are false positives, right? So it's labeling somebody, for example, as credit worthy, but they will end up defaulting on a loan. Or you could be counting how many mistakes it's making that are false negatives that it's labeling somebody as not creditworthy, so you don't give them the loan, but they would have repaid. And these measures, they are very different in terms of whose interests they uh, prioritize, right? So if you're a bank and you're very conservative and you really just don't want to bear any risk from people not repaying, then you're going to give loans only to those who you are certain will repay, right? So you will have lots of false negatives. On the other hand, if you are somebody who is applying for a loan and maybe they're young or they are from an untraditional background where they don't have a very strong uh, credit score, let's say, right? And they don't look precisely credit worthy according to some very stringent criteria, you're withholding economic opportunity for them, right? So they suffer. And so these ways of measuring accuracy are are, uh, polar opposites. 
from each other. And again, who decides which we pick or how we balance them? That's that's the million dollar question. And I think what you've just said actually kind of cuts to the core of what a lot of people tend to forget in people who are in the field practicing. At the end of every false positive, false negative is a person, a real person with hopes, with dreams that your false negative just crushed edge. I think if we go into these things, understanding that real people are on the end of these things, and it's not just a number, it's not just a statistic, and also incentivize people to start behaving a little bit better because, you know, how would you feel if you were on the end of that false negative? Right, exactly. And also the false positive can also be harmful, right? I mean, remember the subprime mortgage crisis where we, we would give out loans to people who then cannot repay, and then there are lots of bankruptcies and people were committing suicide, et cetera, right? That, that's also not a blessing is to, right. to get an outcome that, that you shouldn't be getting. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, I, and I am a bit of an optimist in that I view that most people are good and most people... Um, that when they create something, that they are making it better for either their customer or for the general human condition. And when there's massive gaps, it usually is because they haven't been to look at. It. I think, but you know, I forgot the name of the company that did this, but they got in trouble and the whole thing submarined the entire company. They had were trying to help Chicago with auto adjudication. And the idea was on this al- algorithm that they built, try to make sentencing fair so that they could try to remove the bias. But then what the question that they forgot to ask was, well, the bias already existed in the system. And so when you train it on the bias of the data already there, you're just exacerbating the bias already. And because they think, you know, and have um, kind of the general framework that you're, then they made a lot of their attempt to what they felt like was do something right made massive errors and it, it ended up putting that company out of business. So even from a selfish perspective as a business owner innovator, being able to ask a bigger set of questions um, allows you to to innovate and create, you know, a company or or a product or a service that is, you know, more sustainable, you know, for you. And- uh, I agree with that in part, uh, but not fully. Yeah, that's fine. I, I don't really <laughs> think that we can use uh, this sort of a utilitarian argument to say that mm-hmm. it just Pays to be ethical, right? Very often, ethics is going to be at odds with a company's uh, financial interest and a company's, you know, duty to its shareholders. Let's say, um, you know, by the time that people realize that the product that is being put out doesn't work, or that it disadvantages some people over others, somebody already made a lot of money. And it does sometimes happen that companies, you know, go out of business because they make products that don't work. But more often than not, unfortunately, uh, these practices go unchecked for a long, long while with, you know, detrimental impacts on huge portions of the population, on population groups, like based on demographics that are being unfairly judged to be a higher uh, risk of recidivism, for example, simply because mm-hmm. of how others like them behaved in the past, right? So here I also want to speak maybe a little bit about the, this sort of impetus that we feel to try and use AI to solve all of our social problems. So in the criminal justice yep. setting, I personally am very skeptical that there are uh, responsible uses of AI for a number of reasons. And this is why I don't myself engage in the use of AI at that domain. I just don't engage mm-hmm. in AI in criminal justice because if I engage in a domain as a technologist, then I'm implicitly endorsing 
the general use of technology in that domain, right? Because for me, things don't mm-hmm. stop with critique. Critique. They start with critique, identifying a problem, and then we fix the problem. But from what I've seen so far in many of these domains, um, in many use cases, the right answer is to just stop using predictive analytics. And it may or may not be because the mistakes that these systems make are frequent or because they make mistakes in such a way as to disproportionately flag people who are, let's say, African-American versus white as higher false positive rates for recidivism and lower false negative mm-hmm. But to me, this particular question of whether to use predictive analytics for criminal sentencing is about whether it's morally justified to predict how somebody will behave in the future, whether somebody will commit a crime based on how others like them behaved in the past. And this reminds me immediately of this movie that came out in the early 2000s with Tom Cruise in it called Minority Report, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, are we actually okay? In, a, in an environment where minor, minority report-like technology is being used by our court system. And this is further exacerbated by the fact that judges are actually not at all proficient in data science or predictive analytics, right? So they are not going to be able to look carefully at what the tool tells them. They're not going to be able to interrogate the error bar on that prediction, which, by the way, these days, there's no error bar even being produced oh, uh, yes. together with the prediction. <laughs> Right. And, and in fact, the incentives are set up in such a way where if a judge disagrees with the prediction of a uh, assessment tool, they have to document their disagreement in writing. So who is going to go through the trouble of saying, oh, I disagree with the machine. I'm going to release this person on bail pending trial rather than keeping them behind bars, although the machine told me to keep them behind bars. Right. And then when that person happens to, in fact, be arrested or doesn't come come back for their scheduled court date, the judge may lose their, their appointment, right? So, so again, the risk here of going against what the machine tells you is very high. And all of this in combination just really makes me very skeptical about the use of technology here. And that's going to, you know, this realization that we should not be using a tool rather than let's try to fix the tool. This is never going to be something that a, a vendor of a tool is going to be okay with. And no, that is a that's a fair point and, and definitely a gap, a big national perspective because and that I think that kind of goes back to, you know, why you're advocating a lot for, you know, the technologists to be involved in the policy making because of the here. You know, we, we want we want fairness in plans, you know, here where every more people can succeed, right? More than, you know, have um as we say, life live happiness, right? Um and so you know, the, if the goal is to create that, we need a better and stronger dialogues around well, when is the right time that this should be applied? When is the when should it just be set aside? Because it's not ready, it's remotely ready for um, the we don't have either enough laws or frameworks or thinking around to be able to. Right. And then also, what is the question? What is the problem that we're asking an AI to solve here potentially? Right. And is it something that we have mm-hmm. reason to believe can be answered with the help of data and the predictor? And also that we can check that the answer is correct, right? I mean, because if we're putting in place something that is a self-fulfilling prophecy, then, Mm -hmm. you know, we're building an AI-backed horoscope, crystal ball. We can never validate that using the scientific method. And so, therefore, we're never going to know whether it works. So are we just buying it because somehow there's magic in it? There's no magic. These are engineering artifacts. Julia, 
Yeah. I know one, one problem or challenge so in the UK here as well is that in politics, there are very few people with Sinic backgrounds, especially the way that modern society works. People tend to go to college to become a politician and then they have this idea of the, of the professional politician. So in the actual people laws, there are very few people there. Um, and thus they're not like yourself, example, but to come in and kind of give them advice. Do you think that's the right model moving forwards on policymaking? Or do you think that is an argument to get more people who are technicians, you know, technologists, actually, or scientists, you know, involved in actually, you know, standing for Congress, either at a state, city, or a national level? Yeah, so my, my answer would be a yes and. I do think that, of course, we need lots more technologists at the table. Uh, and part of the reason is that, of course, technologists understand technology better. And the second is that technologists need to step up and to start taking responsibility for the tools that we build. But my other answer is that, and this is where I started today, is that we don't really need to understand how technology works to be able to tell what it does. And I think that at this point, we understand technology well enough to be able to explain it simply to our mothers and our grandmothers and our elected officials. So we do need some effort, I think, in place where there is a requirement for somebody who is about to go and propose a law or deliberate on a law that talks about technology to go and get some level of AI literacy. But that is not a very heavy lift. You don't have to go back to college to get a bachelor's degree in computer science or data science. There are some accessible resources that, that you can use. And I think that we in academia, you know, I personally and then folks in my center are always happy to, to teach and to talk to people who are curious about this technology and to, to give them enough information so that they can think about it, you know, with a common sense and reasonably. And the, the main thing to understand is that technology is not objective, that it's not value neutral, and also it's not rocket science. I mean, if it's something that usually takes data and makes a prediction based on what it's seen, right? So artificial intelligence is based on all of our everyday intelligence. AI is nothing without us. And we are, and we should remain in control. And this is really the main message of, of the uh, education and training that, that I conduct. And I'll, I'll add here also as a, a kind of a plug is that we have been developing comic books to help people become more comfortable with this really, really scary topic, AI and ethics, right? I mean, both of these are scary and the combination is even worse. But we need to remember that we are people, we are human, we have a sense of humor. Uh, machines don't have a sense of humor. And so we should laugh at ourselves and at them, the image of ourselves that we've created in them. And for this, I think humorous presentation is one of the ways to go. I think that's fantastic bit to um, uh, dive in on because I, I loved the comic books. I was able to show those to thirteen year old son, um, and and it helped him. You know, as, as Lee's heard me say this before, when we first made the podcast, I played it for him, and he's like, "Oh, well, Dad, you sound wonderful. That sounds really cool. professional." I have no idea what you're talking about, and so <laughs> I, did, I you know didn't have the you know even have the idea of the comic book, uh, but I was able to point him to and. It made helped demystify the kinds of things that Lee and I and others talk about and make it very relatable for for him. And so I love it. So if you don't mind, talk a little bit more. Like how how did how did your group come up with that idea? And you know where Wonderful. 
I'm really glad that you're your son in uh, the comics. If you have specific feedback from him, please send that feedback my way because we are looking to uh, also make comics that are accessible for children, starting with high school and then mm -hmm. also middle school. So the comics that we have right now are for an adult audience. Uh, they are, we have two comic book series. One of them is a scientific comic series mm -hmm. called Data Responsibly. And these are comics that I use to, to teach computer science and data science students at NYU about responsible AI. The other comic book series, and that's the one that you saw, Sid, I think, mm -hmm. is called We Are AI, Taking Control of Technology. And, uh, it's made of five volumes, and we use these comics as supplementary reading for a public education course by the same name, We Are AI, Taking Control of Technology, that is available online fully uh, on GitHub. All the materials are there, and we also teach it to people in uh, different libraries, at libraries in New York City, as well as at NYU. And the course is free. The way that I started uh, participating uh, in the making of these comic books is through an amazing collaborator uh, who is a very talented data scientist and also a brilliant artist. And her name is Paula Arif Khan. She is a PhD student with me also right now at NYU. And so I'm really, really fortunate to, to be working with her. So she is the artist, and then she and I work on the scripts together. Uh, and it's been just an amazing experience for me because once you start working with an artist, the way that you communicate changes drastically. Mm. You can really just see these really rich, humorous metaphors much faster than uh, you were able to before. I mean, at least for me, that's, that's the case. And that has really enriched and made it much more fun for me to talk about these topics with a broad audience. Um, so Fala is amazing. Please take a look uh, at the work. We are AI. Just Google that and you'll find the comics. They're available in English and in Spanish. Um, and they are very, uh, they're fantastic at just distilling a message that is important for it, everyone to understand. Uh, make it compact, but very approachable. I was just, I, re I read a couple of them. Is that how um, taking, it is very difficult to take complex topics and make it compact so that you know, just in a, in a, in a short read, you can walk away with better understanding. So that was, um, yeah, it, it, you, you took a difficult topic and a difficult task and just made it seem brilliantly simple. So I would encourage Thank you so much. It, this is the best compliment that you, you could have given me. <laughs> so I would, so I want to, to read these, these are that are talked you know, about today and what your institute is working on are going to help us all make the things that, you know, both of that we enjoy, but also make, you know, generally are uplifting for Thank you so much, Sid. Well, it's been exciting to have you on. If anybody wants to connect with you, where might they find? Um, what's the best way? You can just send me an email. It's my last name, stojanovic at nyu.edu. Okay, fantastic. Well, Julia, we were an exciting having you on today. Love the conversation and uh, look forward to potentially something in the future. Thank you very much, Sid. And thank you, Lee. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.